Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Jeffrey Abbott, Director of Executive and Organisational Coaching at the Graduate School of Business, Queensland University of Technology. Thanks very much for joining us today. I talk to CEOs and senior leaders regularly about how much of an influence formal coaching and or mentoring has played in them achieving their career successes. So it's great to have Jeff Abbott along today to really talk about it from the perspective of an academic viewpoint. Jeff's been running the executive and organizational coaching element of QUT's Graduate School of Business for a number of years and he shares some insights in terms of what coaching is and his own career that has led to him to being regarded as one of the foremost experts on executive coaching in Australia. But before we get to that, let me briefly introduce myself to you. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions to senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we can assist you with either recruiting into your own organization or in helping you to achieve your job of choice with employer of choice as quickly as possible, then I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me get on now and introduce to you Jeff Abbott. Jeff Abbott is Director of Executive and Organisational Coaching in the QUT Graduate School of Business in Brisbane, Australia. He facilitates and coaches across programs related to leadership, including within the Executive MBA and Corporate Leadership programs. Jeff grew up in Tasmania, where he completed a Bachelor of Arts. Other formal qualifications include a Graduate Diploma of Education, a Graduate Diploma of Psychology, Honours in Bachelor of Arts and a PhD from the Australian National University. Sit back now and enjoy this conversation with Jeff Abbott. So, uh, Jeff, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's great to have you along. It's very early on a Friday morning. You've got a very big coffee there, so I hope that's going to uh, keep you going through this uh, hour-long discussion. But thanks for joining us. Perhaps just to begin with, if you'd like to let the people listening in, you know, know a little bit about what you're currently doing professionally. Sure. Thanks, Richard. Uh, my current role is uh, officially I'm the Director of Executive Organisational Coaching at the Graduate School of Business in QUT in Brisbane. Okay. Uh, that role, and that's my kind of prime role, and I do a variety of things related to leadership development and coaching. Okay. So uh, most recently, the development of a dedicated graduate certificate in uh, leadership and coaching. So uh, I do coaching myself. Uh, I'm fairly selective at the moment about who I'm able to, to do that with, but mainly uh, senior leaders of where we're running leadership development programs. Okay. Uh, we coach behind all of our leadership development programs because we think that the transfer of learning value of coaching and the, the fact that you can follow through with things that you at a workshop will learn uh, is, the, is the kind of sweet spot. So I coach in there, I organize the programs, design the programs, and also teach into the uh, MBA suite and okay. some of our other programs, depending if leadership and coaching is right. an area. 
Okay, right. So you're tr- uh, teaching leaders how to coach and as well as that you're coaching the leaders in the program. Yeah, and it works both ways because we, when we coach senior leaders, you know, so, sometimes a client will say, Jeff, can I use that with one of my clients? Right. So, well, of course you can. So, and we, sh- you know, as coaches, we share our models uh, with leaders who then use them with their teams. And also, typically, I've got one next week that they'll bring me into their team sometimes to help them with the development right. of their team. But I'm cautious there because we don't want to become a kind of de facto manager. Yeah. And so, how long have um, QUT been in that space for? Well, they were in the space when I arrived six and a half years ago, but uh, at that stage, fairly uh, limited uh, inroads because we were using coaching uh, behind our EMBA program, so the students would get coaches for three or four sessions during during their their program, and that continues today. Uh, We're getting more sophisticated about the way we use that. We've Mm. now got a tool, the Leadership Circle 360 profile, which is a fantastic uh, leadership development tool that we use with the EMBA students and it goes very very deep mm-hmm. and it's but it's got to be supported by really strong coaching mm-hmm. so we've got a panel of coaches that work behind right that. okay is that somewhat similar to say LSI uh, it is similar to LSI it's built off the LSI in many ways uh, it's a little bit more uh, I guess academically based uh, there's a guy in the states Richard uh, Robert Keegan, okay. who's an adult development psychologist, who is probably the leading adult development psychologist in the world, and his stuff underpins it. So it, it really gives the thing a rigor that uh, many of the, the 360s don't have. And I also noticed that it maps the creative leadership competencies that our EMBA and MBA programs teach. Right. So I, when I found it, I thought, well, that's handy because all the things we teach are all the things it measures. So right. this is a no-brainer in terms of uh, helping our program in terms okay. of its rigor. And so would you use a tool at the beginning of the program to get a benchmark as to where somebody's at and then again later in the program to see what areas they've improved? We use it uh, early in the first or about the middle of the first year of the EMBA. Right. And then we give the students an option to do it again at the end. But okay. typically we will simply work with them through those two right. years. In the second year, we pass them. We give them a coach to be so you can't really use that instrument without a coach. Yeah. And then in the second year, they get passed to a mentor. Okay. That takes it further. A C-suite mentor right. that takes it further. Sure. Okay. Well, look, I'm keen to get into all of that. And uh, you know, one of the things that people are often asking is what's the difference between a coach and a mentor, and so on. But let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, get to that conversation in uh, in a little while. So, why don't you talk to us a little bit about you know where it all began for you? Where were you born, and what was your early life like? Mum and dad, brothers and sisters, etc. Yeah. Um, how many minutes have we got? We've got enough. Don't. <laughs> uh, no, well, it, um, I was born in Adelaide, but uh, I didn't like Adelaide. So after three months, I decided that we should move back to Tasmania. Right. Yeah, that was your choice. Uh, yeah, three months. Choice. Old. Yeah. Right. Um, ah, very so good. So grew up in Tasmania, and uh, so I culturally identify as Tasmanian. Okay. Uh, yeah. Which causes a degree of hilarity in class when I'm teaching right. culture, uh, and uh, that's where my formative years were. My father was a uh, a medical practitioner, physician, and a politician. Right. Uh, and also in the army. Okay. Uh, and a fairly, um, I say, a powerful character. Right. So five children in the family, and we were all fairly dominated by a fairly angry, alcohol-ridden, but extremely impressive individual. Right. And uh, what number <laughs> so, were you out of five? Uh, what was I? Four. Number I four. four. Okay. Yeah. Right. 
What about mum? What, what was? Uh... Uh, well, she was interesting. Um, well, she is interesting. She's um, uh, she's now ninety five. Okay. She's, and she's uh, very independent still. But she was a secretary with the uh, uh, the Red Cross, working in administration, secretarial work with the Red Cross. And during the war, she uh, became the personal private secretary of Lady Louis Mountbatten. All right. The, head of the Red Cross globally, and she yeah. toured Australia, and so my mother was the sort of super secretary. Right. And so her career was supporting my father in his medical practice, mm-hmm. and uh, five rather difficult children that she mm-hmm. still tries to look after. Mm-hmm. So your dad uh, was a, a complex character. Yeah, yeah, we think he had some uh, disorder, something uh, a little bit extreme in terms of bipolar or something. Right, like okay. But he was incredibly impressive. Like he introduced into Tasmania as Minister for Road Safety, the uh, compulsory seat belts, random breath testing, and really did some radical things back in the 60s. Right. um, uh, But not easy. He drank too much and he was a very angry individual. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, my uh, dad was certainly not an angry alcoholic, but he did his PhD in 1966 on the negative effects of nicotine. He was a professor of pharmacy, uh, a uh, pharmacy uh, academic, and yet he smoked his whole life and died of uh, (laughs) throat cancer from smoking. And it sounds like your dad, you know, leading at the forefront of seatbelts and RBTs, et cetera, and yet, uh, you know, enjoyed a drink himself. And the maniac behind the wheel, particularly when he'd been drinking. Right, so, So, uh, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Plumbers have the worst pipes. Interestingly, he, as a doctor, he recounted in the 50s when he, uh, that he used to recommend smoking and, and prescribe it as a way of relax, relaxation. Because sure. Because, of course, the, the effects of that stage were not, not fully proven. Yeah. And they say that sitting down is the new smoking. We'll all be standing up at our desks saying... Yeah, not sure about that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, okay, so you're in Tasmania, and uh, and so you obviously did your uh, primary and high schooling there as well. Yeah, okay. And, uh, went to University of Tasmania, followed a fairly traditional uh, teaching career, taught right. state government in the officially most disadvantaged school in Tasmania. Okay. Uh, so my formative teaching years were really quite exciting and a very advanced or you know, interesting and. A sort of open plan and and experimental schooling environment. So right. that's been very was very helpful in sure. terms of opening my eyes to different ways of education. What attracted you to teaching as a career? Uh, I think at that stage I was a little limited in my vision about what I wanted and what I was doing. So it seemed to be an obvious course. I had an interest in uh, in history and in teaching and social sciences and interest in sport. Right. And it just seemed to be uh, I liked the Hobart environment. Yeah. Uh, at that stage I was getting quite keen on cricket. Yeah. And uh, I've heard you quite the cricketer. Well, it was something that I was. That was kind of I guess my identity early on. Is right. Because I, I was a bit lost at school for a while and then worked out that I actually could hit a cricket ball, okay. which is perhaps not a lot of use to anybody, but it was certainly a lot of fun. Sure. And I uh, got a bit of a reputation for being quite good at that. Okay. I never got any very large amounts of runs as a batsman, but I right. certainly always looked as though I was going to. So. <laughs> You're all flair. All flair. Right. All flair. Oh, very good. And how, uh, how far did you get with your cricket career? Well, I got a... Yeah, I was sort of... Um, certainly played a lot of first grade cricket and uh, in... Hobart and in Perth and uh, Canberra and represented southern Tasmania and was sort of on the edge of, of sort of serious stuff but I really didn't believe that I was good enough to do it and mm-hmm. it was not something that I really put much time mm-hmm. into so mm-hmm. it sort of drifted through as being an occupation uh, sort of okay. had, you know a fun thing to do and 
but not something that I really took very far in the end. Okay. So school, uni, teaching yeah. in Tasmania, and then off to WA. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What took you there? Well, it's funny. I, uh, I was conscious in Tasmania that my, that, you know, we're fairly limited. Uh, it's, it's a lovely place, but the, it just seemed to me that staying in Tasmania was a bit of a narrow existence. I just uh-huh. wanted to, and the obvious pass at that stage was to get a job uh, out, of, out of state in mm-hmm. another, uh, what do they say, on the mainland. Right. Yeah, on the mainland. Uh-huh. So I went to the mainland. And uh, that was the, the way to do it. And, and then, why WA versus, you know, the East Coast? Yeah, oh, just because the job. It seemed like a nice job. It was a teaching job in an area I wanted to do, and it seemed uh-huh. like a nice place to go. So, okay. And the cricket was good over there at the time. So. Right. Yeah. And you're a young single guy? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and how long were you over in WA for? Uh, five years, I think. Six okay. Years, maybe a bit less, yeah. Still yeah. teaching uh, yeah. in a high school or a primary school? It was a private school, secondary private okay. school at that yeah. stage. Yeah. And what were your subjects? Uh, history, social studies, English, and of course, cricket. Hockey. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then and then from there, what, back to Tasmania again? Yeah. Well, I decided I wanted to go back and do some study. Right. Uh, because I again realised at that point that teaching, although it was a fairly... Uh, comfortable existence was not what I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. I uh, thought, well, okay, I'll go back and do some study, uh, have a think about it, regroup and go again. So I then went back to Tasmania, did some part-time teaching and then went into uh, uh, Commonwealth Government in a graduate program into, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, graduate okay. course. Possibly. And what, what was the second piece of study for you then? Uh, it was, at uh, that stage, it was a Master's of Humanities in History, but okay. uh, again, my interest in history, once I stopped teaching it, lagged, so mm-hmm. I didn't complete that one. Right. Uh, so I stopped study at that point. And was the idea of going back to Tasmania because it was just easier for you to commit to doing that study when you're close to family, or was it yeah. the program? No, that, the program was interesting. At that right. stage, I, my belief in my uh love of history was probably stronger than my actual practice yeah. of it. So when I got in, it was buried in a project in Tasmanian history. It, part of it was very interesting and mm-hmm. still is, but at that stage I didn't really see okay. my direction as going into academia and okay. in history because that would have been the pathway into right. uh, academia and that was not after a while and I sort of got a taste of that. I thought, no. Okay. And so then uh, into Department of Transport and Communication. Yeah. Right. Communications. It was the area, the first area I went was probably the, the formative one. It was the area at that stage, Bob Hawke and the government had decided to merge the ABC and the SBS. And so I was on a task force uh, looking at that and the Senate committee that was investigating it. Right. And so I got to know the ABC and the SBS and broadcasting policy and I'm still yeah. quite interested in all sure. that stuff. And what was the uh, association between transport and communication that seems quite a, well, there was a different things it was a mega department that they i think aviation was wrapped in there as well okay. so uh, it was simply one of those things that governments mm-hmm. do uh, that they decided that large departments mm-hmm. were the small departments so i actually entered the department of communications and then it became the department of transport and communications right so it was just one of those bureaucratic things where the letterhead gets changed and sure nothing much changes other than that and was there a reason why that uh, project to do a review of the ABC and SPS was happening in Tasmania versus elsewhere? No, it was happening, that was in Canberra. Oh, you moved uh, to that Canberra. Was the, sorry, that was the um, uh, Commonwealth Government. So right. The, program, the graduate program I joined was in Canberra. Okay, uh, right. Commonwealth Public Service. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay. And so um, uh, from that point then, how did your career unroll? You ended up in SBS, didn't you? Yeah, because I, I sort of... Uh, 
looked at what was happening in, in bureaucracy in, in uh, uh, Canberra and thought, well, again, a bit like teaching, this doesn't seem to be my passion. I'm good at it. Mm -hmm. And I was getting promotions and I was appreciated for what I was doing. But I got a sense, well, I liked the SBS culture, the mm -hmm. multicultural nature of SBS broadcasting excited mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always, strangely enough, from Tasmania. Cultural diversity, for some reason, has always triggered an interest. Mm. Maybe through cricket. I remember seeing the touring cricket teams from okay. overseas coming into to Hobart. Sure. Yeah, but um, so when I saw the job at SBS in policy there, I thought, yeah, that, that looks like a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. Sydney looked like a lot of fun. So mm -hmm. headed to Sydney. Uh, in, I forget what year it was, but it'd be 92. 92. Yeah, yeah, that was the uh, Barcelona Olympics. And um, uh, had a good time getting to know SBS broadcasting policy and mm -hmm. working with, you know, at that stage, 68 different language groups at SBS, between, mm -hmm. split between Sydney and Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I learned from SBS, if nothing else, was that the uh, the idea, I was wondering how the different language groups would go to get on between themselves. Right. And the answer was very well. Okay. But what was interesting was that the the station was split with mirror groups between Sydney and Melbourne. So there's a French program in Melbourne, mm -hmm. a French program in Sydney. Right. And they broadcast to each other's audiences, which okay. would seem to be a lovely setup. Except the rivalry between the different Melbourne Sydney stations was incredible. Okay. Like the, you know, the French group in Melbourne, the French group in Sydney, and the you know, the Dutch group in Melbourne, the Dutch group in Sydney just didn't, often didn't gel. So right. There was, so there's much more within cultural. Uh, interesting. So uh, rivalry than there was problems between the broadcasting groups. And so this uh, was part of the incentive to look at coaching from the point of view of understanding the dynamics of teams, etc. Yeah. And my, right, my role at SBS evolved from being sort of government policy work and uh, administrative uh, support and uh, corporate planning into more of a quasi-internal coach. Okay. Uh, that's what I found right. osmosis was happening. And then I and I was interested at that stage in counselling, uh, doing some telephone counselling with Lifeline. Okay. And thinking, yeah, I've got a bit of a thing with this. So I think there's some way to go. And that right. was starting to trigger my passion in work. Interesting. Up to that point, hadn't happened. So, um, right. Uh, so I thought, well, how does this work? So I went back and did psychology at university, went back to square one and okay. did psychology through first year, second year, third year, fourth year. and then Whilst working at SBS. Whilst working, yeah. Right. And so applying. Just, um, uh, just uh, I'm interested, the, the conflict between the two French teams and the two Dutch teams and so on, how much of that, in your opinion, was cultural versus organisation? Uh, so um, uh, personal culture. Yeah. versus the culture of the organisation? It was very much around the, the systemic nature of the way it was set up. Okay. Um, this is what I'm teaching at the moment around in coaching is around, uh, you know, behaviour is, is inevitably influenced by the system in which you're operating. Mm -hmm. So that's the core. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the, the essence of the course we're running at QUT, that, mm -hmm. that we really believe that coaching operates in an organisational system mm -hmm. and that individuals are deeply in, in, influenced by the groups within within the, which they operate, so mm. whether that be national culture, cities, mm -hmm. cricket teams, whatever it is, sure. you know. Okay, so um, uh, you were saying that... Yeah, uh, yeah, that people, you know, culture does influence us, often though it's beneath the surface, and this is where uh, a lot of my work is, is to have conversations with individuals and teams and encourage them to open up the possibility that there's influences on them in the way that they live their lives, 
that really they're not aware of mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. And that if you're not aware of something and the influence it's having, then you can't leverage it to your advantage. Mm -hmm. So helping people say, well, okay, well, you know, how might that have affected the way that you are doing that now? What are the influences maybe mm. that are coming to bear on your decision-making? Mm -hmm. And uh, the more they understand that, the more they can say, oh, that's interesting. How mm -hmm. do I work with that? So okay. using the kind of positive psychology approach of saying, okay, what there that you've got is a resource that you can use. It's not a not an issue. Culture can be used as a, you know, if we look at cultural differences, we can say, oh, you know, there's the problem of cultural differences. Mm -hmm. or we can say, oh, there's the opportunity from sure. cultural differences. Right. This, is a, this is a choice. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. uh, it's your mindset dictates how, whether it's a, a problem or a project. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so you're at SBS, you're getting drawn into being a little bit of a, uh, a coach and helping to um, alleviate some of these uh, internal dynamics. It, um, it inspires you to go back to university and do a psychology degree. I imagine at that time, I mean, we're talking what, mid 90s, would that be right? Yeah, getting, yeah, mid, about 96, I right. went to a psychologist who was a former NASA in engineer, space engineer of some kind. Okay. He was in North Sydney, I went to his home, right. had a number of sessions, paid quite a lot of money. And <clears throat> did this psych test and all these multiple tests with ink blots and images and God knows what. And at the end of it, he said, well, Jeff, the job you're in at the moment is just about the one you should be in. Right. Thanks. That's really bloody helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I imagine at that time, the term coach in relation to business was probably maybe not even existent. No, I reckon that's about the time it was kind of born. Right. Uh, I got... When I finished, <clears throat> excuse me, when I finished my psychology honours, I did I got a first class honours in psychology and was going to be a clinical or organisational psychologist. But then mm -hmm. I realised actually that, again, a bit like the history and a bit like government administration, that was the last place I wanted to be. When I started to go to conferences and interact with, with the psychology community, I thought, no, I don't want to be yeah. there. Uh, but then I was waiting for a friend in a bookshop in Paddington, and there was a book I came across. Paddington, called, Sydney? Yeah. Yeah. Called Coach Yourself. Right. And I picked it up. I thought, oh, this looks good. So I read it, and it was the application of cognitive psychology to coaching. Okay. And to you know, business coaching as well. Right. So I thought, well, that's nice. I want to do this. This uh -huh. is what I want to do in my life. Do you remember so, who the author was? Yeah. I flipped the back over, and I thought, I wonder who wrote that. So it was a, a doctor... Anthony Grant, Dr. Tony Grant, who right. was, I thought, I wonder where he is. And he was at Sydney University. Wow. So I thought, well, I'll ring him up. So I did. Serendipity. Yeah. So I went <laughs> and saw Tony and had a chat to him and said, would you back me to do a PhD in this? He said, yes, I would. Mm -hmm. So I applied at Sydney University, didn't get in. I applied at Griffith, didn't get in. I applied at ANU, did get in. Right. Uh, and backed by my uh, Dr. Paul Atkins there and Dr. Professor Bruce Stenning, and they backed me to do a project in action learning and cross-cultural management right. in, and coaching. And you're still working at SBS at that stage or not? Uh, no, that's, that was well. I was when they ticked it off. Okay. Uh, and then I said to SBS, well, thank you. Right. Uh, and I took leave. Uh, but really, I had no intention of going back. Right. Uh, so you you committed to your PhD on a full-time Yeah, basis. so I got a scholarship, did it full-time. Right. And, uh, and got Tony Grant. Uh, was one of my supervisors mm -hmm. and went to university, did the quickest PhD proposal in ANU's history. Right. Uh, which took me about three months to write it. Okay. 
got on a plane and they hardly saw me again. Right. <laughs> so that was the end of that. I went to uh, El Salvador in Central America. Right. And did, found some people, a study of a sample of expatriate managers who were working in San Salvador. Right. And worked with them on coaching them. Australian expatriates? Uh, there was all sorts. There okay. was some um, Australians, there was uh, Canadians, there was uh, a lot of Americans. Right. Uh, so I have... All sorts of, yeah, variety, Filipinos. Right. And what, what uh, particularly about El Salvador was attractive to you? Well, I'd been into Latin America in the, in the 90s and mm-hmm. I really liked uh, the culture of Latin America mm-hmm. and uh, the, the literature of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and uh, just got a sense of that that was a culture I was attracted to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then I started studying Spanish. I also met my partner from El Salvador, mm-hmm. uh, and who was in Sydney at that stage. So we spent some time, several years in Sydney. Okay. And then we decided uh, to, li- I, you know, that model of, of for the PhD was very much exactly what I wanted to do. It was just a question of where to do it. Right. And there was an obvious pass in terms of uh, right. looking at where his family was and to uh, move back there for a little while. Sure. And, and was there also, I mean, I understand the hard connection to go there, but... Was there something unique about that cultural environment that you thought would give you a particular, you know, orientation in terms of how you were conducting your PhD? Yes. Right. Uh, there was the big thing was hardship. Mm-hmm. In uh, like in some expat environments, there's not, you know, like if expats come to Australia, there is some definitely some cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, the life here is fairly easy and mm-hmm. fairly the, the challenges are such that they're of degree rather than massive, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, here uh, studying expats, well, that would be interesting, but not to me challenging. So, right. Whereas in El Salvador, uh, when we were there last August, there were 900 homicides in the month. Mm. Uh, there's earthquakes, mm-hmm. there's poverty, there's you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tough place. Sure. So looking at, at the, the pressure that people are under in those circumstances and how coaching might help them to uh, work with those. Uh, what I had kind of anticipated but didn't put in the study so much is the it, it, my own challenge as an mm-hmm. expat working uh, in that environment. So that itself was tough. So mm-hmm. uh, the combination of my experience and their experience certainly made... Because when I did a, decided to do a PhD, I knew that coaching was considered flaky. Right. Uh, and for some people it still is. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. For very good reason, I have to say. Well, it's funny so. because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I've, I've had guests on this podcast who are in very, very senior roles, yeah. and I know that they are or have been coached because I've introduced them to their coach, yeah. and yet on the podcast I say, oh, so, you know, in terms of your professional development, have you ever been coached or no? And uh, I find that yeah. absolutely fascinating yeah. uh, that people almost, some people view it as it's a, I, I can't, you know, uh, acknowledge I'm being coached because people will think I'm weak, um, yeah. rather than you know I'm a high performance individual and I'm being coached to perform at my absolute best. And it reflects the history of coaching that you know we've gone from stage coaches of coaching from one part to another through to uh, a sports coach who shouts at you and makes you run faster, right? And then through to an executive coach that you have just before you walk the plank. <laughs> And then the next iteration is, well, actually, the people that are about to walk the plank walk back and are very successful. I'd like one of those. Right. So with my Mercedes-Benz, I'd also like a coach, please. Yeah, sure. So then the next iteration is, well, actually, I've noticed this stuff 
the coach is doing work, so why don't I use it? Right. So that's the final iteration. Right. Well, not the final, but it is the next iteration. Yeah. The leader is coach. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's where we're at at QUT. Okay, great. Uh, so the, just to close out, so you, you've completed your PhD whilst you're in El Salvador? Yeah, pretty well. Okay. Uh, and was working there, uh, but decided that... What kind of work were you doing there? Uh, consultancy work, but I found the, I was working with Dell, the... Um, Computer, computer company, company. Yeah. Yeah, the call center there, which was an amazing cultural experience. Watching the Americans, and the, the Salvadorians conned them. They told told Dell that there was a highly computer, high, bilingual, computer savvy group of people that would run a call center for them to service the bottom end of the computer market in the U.S. Right. Well, that wasn't true. Right. Dell didn't really do their homework. So when they got there. The only people in El Salvador that were really good at this had been let out of jail in the States and had been deported. Okay. Their English was very good. Sure. But they were having a lot of trouble, so they had to close the call centre in okay. the end. They yeah. just couldn't get it. They got, a, they got it up and running, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't viable mm-hmm. long term. Okay. So, um, so the Salvador, but it did a great deal of benefit for the Salvadorians because a lot of young Salvadorians got a great opportunity to learn English get themselves into jobs which they couldn't have got otherwise. So, you know, we know people, friends of ours who started with nothing, yep. who are now in fabulous positions because they took the opportunity that, that company provided. Right. So there's a downside. Yeah, a, sure. A black and a white in that one. Okay. So, and so at what point did you uh, head back to Australia then? It was around 2000, end of 2007, I think we got back. Okay. Uh, and I worked there in a variety of roles in Sydney, my coaching business uh, and where I set that up. And this is the uh, Institute of Executive Coaching. Uh, that was the company I worked for. They're still going, going okay. the Institute of Executive Coaching Leadership in Sydney. Okay. Uh, I worked for them as a consultant. I also taught at uh, a couple of Macquarie uh, Graduate School of Management and UNSW and ran individual coaching programs myself through my business. And then I started to look at a uh, sort of cross-cultural coaching program that I wanted to develop uh, and run with courses and was talking to different universities about partnering with them on that. Mm-hmm. I ran into Bob O'Connor, who was the director of, exec- of uh, Graduate School of Business in uh, QUT. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, actually, we've just had a job come up up here. Do you want to have a look at that? So mm-hmm. I did as a corporate educator. And it looked good. And it, he gave me assurances that I could play with the coaching space. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do that for a while. So what does corporate educator mean? Uh, they... The roles we have there in the graduate school, they're teaching into all of our programs and running our leadership development programs in corporations. So we do a lot of corporate work and government work. So the the graduate school is the kind of uh, corporate end of the university interface with government, Mm -hmm. with uh, commercial companies and government. So if you want a leadership development program, you'd come to the graduate school and we would... uh, tailor-made one for you. Yeah. So the corporate educators will teach into the MBA, teach into the EMBA, the complex project management space, Mm -hmm. as well as doing quasi-consultancy work and coaching around the the traps. And and so it was a couple of years into that then that you stepped into this role as now director of uh, executive coaching programs. Yeah, I I found that I was spending too much time as a lecturer yeah I'm not I'm a, you know I'm, I'm viewed as a competent lecturer uh, and I sometimes enjoy doing it but I much enjoy much more interested in coaching that's where my right my passion is because yeah. I think that's where I can make an impact mm-hmm. uh, and so I talked to Bob about creating that role and since then that's been growing 
and gradually shedding other work. So now I'm full-time. Mm -hmm. All the stuff I do virtually is, is coaching. Mm. Okay, well, before we talk a bit about the, the structure within QT, I'm, a lot of people will be listening to this. I mean, the predominant audience of this podcast are aspiring uh, or incumbent C-suite executives or non-executive directors. Uh, they're probably, you know, uh, in their uh, mid to more senior part of their career and may or may not have had some exposure to personal coaching uh, within a professional context. What are, what are some examples of uh, the kind of people that present uh, looking for coaching and the kind of things that uh, you've en enabled them to go on and achieve professionally through having a competent coach? Yeah, um, it varies a lot, but a typical example might be a senior executive who's very effective at task completion, mm -hmm. but is struggling in terms of managing staff in a way that engages them. So they're getting feedback that they're not uh, received well, staff engagement's down, turnover's high, uh, all of the, it's really a, the connection with coaching is staff engagement, a mm -hmm. lot of it. So a senior leader through their personal, uh, the way they're showing up, the way they're dealing with their staff, they may be highly intelligent, uh, highly dynamic, etc., etc. but people don't like working for them mm. and people don't respond to them and don't feel motivated. And as a result, the leader is less effective in mm -hmm. achieving what they want. So it's that classic paradox between in order to achieve the task, you need to focus less on the task and more on the relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is where uh, a lot of the coaching is. Where are people's strengths? Don't uh, We deal with a lot of senior engineers who are in leadership roles. Yeah in the defense industries particularly, and I've okay. had a lot of success in that area. And the reason that I've had the success, I think, is because I'm not saying to people, don't be less of being an engineer, don't be less of being an analytical thinker, a structured thinker, and don't let anybody tell you that that power is not of value to you. Mm -hmm. But what's of value is hold that, but also look at these other possibilities in what was known, you know, the, what do they call it? the um, Oh, one guy called, you know, the soft and cuddly stuff. You know? Right, the warm oh, fuzzy stuff. I don't like that warm fuzzy stuff. <laughs> but actually, you know, uh, you know, engineers are human beings too. Sure. So we talk to the managers and say, you know. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, and they're great. You know, they're great parents. They're great, you know, they're, they're, they're lovely people with great values. And I really enjoy dealing mm -hmm. with senior people with these very hard, you know, backgrounds in mm. accounting and engineering mm. and wherever it comes from. Mm -hmm. But often they forget that they also need to give attention to the, those relational skills, sure. which will help the people that do the job do the job. So would you say that they are predominantly coming to you because they've had some feedback or they've done some kind of engagement survey and they're, and they're going, oh, geez, I've got a problem here, I've got to fix. Yeah, not not a problem so much as that they feel that they could do more. Right. They, they feel that there's something not quite satisfying for them. Yeah. And a lot of that is around anchoring them. One of the reasons that they're not necessarily being well received is that they're not playing by their values. And right. That, you know, it's that deep sense of who they are as a person. Yeah. But people don't sometimes don't know. Mm -hmm. So the more they are able to be themselves, mm -hmm. the more they are effective at, at doing the job. Because they can make the tough decisions, they can do all the things they need to do, mm. but people understand where they're coming from. Mm. You know, it's not about being you know, weak, it's about being tougher around playing it by what you see mm. and uh, having the conversations. You know, many people are not having the conversations they need to have. 
you know, me included. But they're not having the, the tough conversation. Well, yeah, and so often, you know, we in coaching we're setting up people to have conversations and helping them prepare for those conversations. Mm -hmm. And after they've had them, it turns out that the, it's the greatest conversation they could possibly sure. have. That all that fear and anxiety around the conversation is is it's come to nothing. Yeah, I can't so, remember who. I think it might have been Mark Twain said, "I spend my entire life worrying about things that actually never happen." Yeah, uh, and yeah. I think also, I mean, from my own perspective, I've been I've had a variety of coaches for about twelve years. Um, it's great to just have somebody who is not your spouse or your boss or your peers that you can actually uh, openly ask for uh, feedback on issues that you don't feel comfortable talking to invested stakeholders about. Yeah, yeah, and it's a very vulnerable time. People will talk to me in coaching about anything. Really. Sure. I mean, they'll tell people, tell me things that they won't tell other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and once they get a level of understanding of the confidentiality and the trust. Mm -hmm. I remember a, an investor, uh, he was a senior manager or a, a regional manager in uh, Latin America for a multinational. And he was migrating into a business uh, role. Mm -hmm. And I remember he, had a, he got investors around the business and he rang me on a Sunday night and said, Jeff, I've got an investors meeting tomorrow. I want to talk you through it. And I said, uh, look, you know, I, I, this is not my strong point. I'm not a business, you know. Uh, he said, no, that's not what I want. Mm. It's around my anxiety. Mm -hmm. I want to talk through this so that I feel confident mm. to go in. It does, you know, that's not a, what, what I want you for. Mm. So at that point, it was clear to me that that's where my power was to help people sure. to manage who they are, not yeah. what they do. And the last thing he's going to go and tell you know, one of those people is, I'm feeling really anxious because yeah. uh, that is not what uh, you know, uh, senior executives want to admit to. Yeah. So right. he, he took the idea from a, a drunken thought in Miami through to a major business which he sold for multi-million dollars two years ago. All right. <laughs> so that worked right quite well, really. And unfortunately, probably your fees aren't uh, you no. know, a percentage of success. Well, the irony was he was one of my um, uh, study participants in, right. the, in the PhD, so I didn't get paid at all. Oh. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And so um, uh, from what I understand, uh, what um, you're orientated now towards within QT, obviously um, the coaching element is a, a part of it, but it's also um, teaching leaders how to coach in their own right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Um, that's uh, probably something that people would intuitively understand that as a leader, I need to be able to be a good coach. But what's sort of happened in the, uh, the psyche of commercial first world business um, that's brought that to the forefront in people saying, actually, I, I need to commit to learning this discipline. Yeah. Uh, the, the way I describe it is as there's been a growth in the, uh, they talk about the VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, mm -hmm. is those features of, you know, whenever I run uh, groups, seminars on this, I say, well, okay, who's living in an environment at the moment in their work that's somewhat uncertain and changing, mm -hmm. and they, there's a bit of a laugh and all the hands go up. And then I say, well, okay, who thinks it's going to change? And mm -hmm. more laughter. Uh, so people are realizing that there's permanent, there's permanent uncertainty. Sure. So they can't know what's going to happen. Mm. So the degree of predictability, the degree of, of official, of traditional means of control, mm. and our organizations are structured around control, mm. uh, those don't work so well. Sometimes they do, but 
what you've got is managers in hierarchical, traditional, top-down command and control environments trying to command and control really unable to do it because they're not fully informed by what's going on in the mm -hmm. organization. And the only way to do that is to ignite the energy of the system mm. and the connection points in human systems are conversations. So you've got to open people up to having better conversations so that the, the energy and the knowledge in the organization is feeding back. So the decision makers are actually making decisions with some idea of what's going on. Mm. And they can't be doing the work. They can't be trying to make those decisions for everybody. They've got to push it down and empower others to, to make mm -hmm. the decisions, but have confidence that they're understanding the patterns and the energy and the way that's working in the organization. So coaching is all about that. It's mm. about opening people up to having different conversations where they trust each other more, where they're able to empower people in a genuine way and be curious. Mm -hmm. You know, so many, you know, you see uh, the, the senior executives that try to give an impression that they know everything. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't work. You know, mm -hmm. You've got to give the impression that you're confident in what you know and you're confident in your ability, but you want others to know mm -hmm. and to value the knowledge that they have and not to finish their sentences and not to come in over the top of them with your expertise, but to allow them to understand what they do better mm -hmm. and to support them through the process. Mm. Um, people will think about sales and they will say, you know, sales is something you can't learn. You're either inherently good at selling or not. Uh, and a lot of more technical leaders come through and they really resist uh, this idea of having to be a salesperson. I imagine in some respects it must be the same from a coaching point of view. You know, you mentioned earlier the sort of the gruff engineer who isn't into this warm and fuzzy stuff and they're thinking, bloody hell, how, how am I going to develop the personality required to do uh, to be a successful coach because I guess that's an innate skill you've either got it or you're not. But I imagine that there must be frameworks that you use and tools that can enable that person to say, okay, I don't naturally lean towards being in a coaching style leadership, but I can learn some tools to enable me to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, and we use, I guess, what we call evidence-based coaching. I mean, right. we've got a model put together called eFire, which is basically an energy model of coaching which brings in ideas from complexity leadership and all sorts of different uh, theories of, of mm -hmm. human communication and, and effectiveness and human flourishing from positive psychology and it, it really is a, a, a system where you help people to frame conversations to mm -hmm. help the people they're coaching to have a system a systemic inquiry of what's going on in relation to the issue to explore possibilities mm -hmm. to leverage strengths which is a big one leveraging strengths rather than you know, sweating on, on problems. Sure. And to explore and experiment and in the execution of action is to look at it from an experimental, you know, talk about the serious, you know, John Dewey, the philosopher, American philosopher, talks about the ideal mental condition being the serious play of the mind upon an issue. Mm -hmm. So encouraging that idea, that paradox between being serious and being playful mm -hmm. to allow the mind to relax and to, to mm. be creative and innovative. So that, that model is, has got a series of sample questions around mm -hmm. it and, and a whole series of models that sit behind it 
but in its at the front end of it, it's giving people a very, very usable tool to say, well, just practice asking people some questions and mm. shutting up after you ask the question. Mm. You know, it's not that hard. Read the question. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you know, not quite that simple, but, yeah, sure. but it, when you get people practicing in that way, yeah. it's surprising when they think, oh, well, I wanted to tell them what to do, but once I realized if I shut up and listen, then they, they'd work it out themselves. Right. Like, Yay! <laughs> yeah, so it's... Uh, it's very powerful stuff if people, but they have to be curious about what they don't know. Yeah. If they come in already knowing, oh, yes, I've been coaching people for 25 years. And they go, oh, yeah, sure. Okay. So what are you actually doing? Well, as you know, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a segue. I mean, working in the executive search space, which I do uh, over the last seven years, I've been approached by literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people who put themselves out as an executive coach. Oh, Richard, I'd love to come and meet with you because uh, I'm an executive coach and, you know, I, I'd love, you know, to potentially partner with you. And But what they're really looking for is for me to uh, be a source of uh, clients for them. Yeah. And I say to them, okay, well, you know, what's your unique selling proposition? They say, oh, I'm really good. And okay, what areas do you specialize in? You know, change. And, and it's obvious that... Uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there carrying a business card that calls themselves executive coach or business coach or, you know, uh, similar titles, but um, there's not been much uh, uh, rigor around um, them being able to call themselves and yet not actually have any substance behind it. So I think in some respects, the fact that what you're doing now is you're creating um, a formal recognition of competency is gonna be a great thing for the industry. Yeah, and, and that's why I guess that the full title of this thing is called a Graduate Certificate in Business mm-hmm. Leadership Through Coaching and Mentoring. Mm-hmm. So it's it's turbocharging their current leadership capacity by adding coaching and mentoring skills, mm-hmm. particularly coaching methodologies, which mm-hmm. are evidence-based coaching methodologies. So say positive psychology is a great source of knowledge about how humans flourish. Action learning, cycles of encouraging people to do something, then to reflect on it, work out a, a model, an approach, a conceptual idea of what they're doing, and then plan something better. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, that's how adults learn, and that's what coaching often is. Sure. And we're drawing people into a systemic understanding of that. You know, How do you as an individual operate? How does that fit in a team? How does the team operate and, and an organization? How does that fit in a society? And help people to hold those different lenses mm-hmm. while understanding the other lenses at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's the way your mind works. It's complexity of mind to understand the patterns and the interactions going on in okay. your organization. And so what are the kind of people that you're hoping to attract to do the program? We, it's a bit like what you said, oh, well, who do we coach? You coach anybody. Right. But no, it's, uh, it's, we talk about leaders inspired to coach and coaches inspired to lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really it's for executives who already might have been coached. Uh, they're probably middle, moving on through middle and, and in their careers. And they're getting a sense that coaching is something that's of value to them. Mm-hmm. They want to add their the power to their leadership mm-hmm. and some of them in the back of their minds thinking all right well when i finish this gig i wouldn't mind being a coach myself uh, so transitioning from uh, a line management style executive into a full-time coaching orientated role yeah right and it, some some want to be executive coaches and mentors yes. after they've finished their corporate yeah. careers okay uh, or their mid-career and they're really wanting to build we've got a few the people that have signed up so far a variety of industries from mm-hmm. education from mining from finance mm-hmm. from uh, you name it and 
and they are coming from different backgrounds, mm. but the common thing is that they want to engage other people. Mm -hmm. They're very ambitious about developing their leadership impact. Mm -hmm. They want to make a difference. Sure. We talk about in the project, in the program, a positive difference project. So if you were coming to us, we'd ask you, well, Richard, uh, great that you're interested, but what are you going to do to make a difference in an organization that you are engaged with? Mm -hmm. If you can't answer that question, then there isn't a role because the sure. positive difference project in the, in the organizational, in the graduate certificate, it, you have to demonstrate impact. And at the start of the project, uh, identify with the stakeholders return on investment or mm -hmm. return on in, in, uh, their uh, mm -hmm. engagement. And or expectations, and then to map that through the project to mm -hmm. show where, where this is making a difference. Okay, so they could either be uh, pick a role family. I'm I'm wanting to be the best CFO I can. I know that to be the best CFO I can, I need to be able to coach and mentor those people that report through to me. Or alternatively, it could be somebody who says, "I've been coached. I actually have an aspiration to be a coach." I want some formal training and structure to enable me to do that to the best of my ability. Yeah, and right. if, if coaches come to us, it's more saying to them, well, all right, well, this is a leadership course. Yeah. So who are you leading mm -hmm. and how are you leading and what are you going to do in the course in mm -hmm. your project to lead others? And, uh, and as you say, the CFO is a perfect example. A CFO that maybe want to becoming a, C, a CEO. Yeah. Uh, that says, all right, I've had fantastic success in the role. I'm a good leader, but I want to improve my leadership skills. We've got a, a senior leader, a, a senior legal officer in in the program. He's mm -hmm. got fantastic skills in that area, but mm -hmm. wants to develop into more of a leadership role mm. using their existing skills. I think that's excellent because uh, you know, for the majority of sort of forty-five plus year old um, leaders, they've either uh, done an MBA or they've moved beyond what an MBA can deliver them in terms of professional development. So this is saying as a CFO, for example, you've done your finance related qualifications. Now this is about rounding you out uh, to be able to lead most effectively, which is going to be the springboard to take you from functional CFO to CEO. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, Interesting. And we've got a few, or uh, almost, well, ex EMBA students, MBA students that have done their MBA. Yeah. They've studied leadership. They've got a sense of coaching. Mm. They're in senior, you know, C-suite roles in, in many respects. And they're coming back and they're saying, "Well, you know, we're looking for something else now. Yeah. That's different. Mm. And this is different because." It's largely virtual, mm -hmm. but it's not virtual like sitting in front of a computer doing quizzes. Yeah. It's virtual as in engaging with an action learning group of your peers mm -hmm. of diverse industries to say, okay, how are we going to help each other learn using mm -hmm. coaching methodologies? Mm -hmm. And our job is to coach them right. and to work with them virtually and also at a residential and a study tour mm -hmm. to Boston. And we just heard that the study tour to the Institute of uh, coaching study uh, conference for coaching in Boston, which is a spin-off of Harvard Medical School. Uh, after that conference, we're going to uh, Ford Motor Company mm -hmm. to explore the way they're using leadership and coaching methodologies in a global project mm, that they're doing. Fantastic. So it's really engaging them with a global experience, a virtual experience with, with colleagues, mm -hmm. and as diverse a group of colleagues as we can possibly find. Mm -hmm. And the other 
uh, approach is some organisations are talking about multiple entrants, so they've got a group of five or six people they want to put through to engage with a coaching culture. Okay. So to shift the organisational culture yep. towards a coaching culture where people understand it at all levels, mm-hmm. so they're actually able to have these more powerful conversations mm-hmm. uh, while they're uh, also doing the course. Okay, so, great. And you mentioned a, a large percentage of the content is delivered virtually. So this isn't just a course for people who live in Brisbane, is it? Um, you've got a uh, appetite for people to come in from all over Australia. Yeah, and we've got applicants now from uh, other cities outside mm-hmm. of Brisbane, and we've got a, 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 co- a program down in Sydney Information Evenings. We've got other centres. But what we're anticipating, we talked to the uh, Institute of Coaching Director uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's very interested in helping us to identify a cohort to run the residential in North America. Okay. I'm also on the board of the uh, Association for Coaching in the UK, and mm-hmm. they're interested in helping us to establish a presence for a residential in the UK. Right. So where we've got a cohort, we pop up with a residential. Sure. And then they do the virtual course after that. Right, so, fantastic. So, it must be very rewarding for you as a you know as somebody who's dedicated your career to coaching as an academic and obviously designing these programs to get um, global uh, recognition for what you're doing. Yeah, it is, and it'll be. I'm really fascinated by what will happen with it if we can really build. We've got a great cohort now for this first Australian uh, mm-hmm. offering. Uh, we're already putting a date in for the next Australian offering. So you'll uh, you'll have one or two cohorts a year. Uh, we'll start with we'll have two running. Once right. We, uh, we get this one starts twenty fifth of July. Yeah. Uh, that'll be a unique group because it's our first run through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in February another one. Okay. And then uh, we will be seeing what kind of using our own what are we saying eating our own cooking. Right. Uh, in terms of complexity theory okay, and system, sure. systems and you know, viral networks, etc., yeah, uh, is we would love to have this running in a number of different centres during the year. Right. And, and once we establish uh, the, the virtual content, enables us mm-hmm. to be fairly flexible. Uh, we're using uh, leadership circle accredited coaches behind the program to help facilitate it. And those are all over the world. Our partnership with the leadership circle enables us to locate locally. Uh, uh, located people that okay. can help us to coach people mm-hmm. and as well as coach them virtually to also run these kind of local area Excellent. Uh, pods. Okay. Well, certainly for people who are interested in the program, uh, I'll put uh, some links in the show notes that you can follow to uh, uh, get more information and potentially submit an application. Just coming back to yourself now, so Jeff, uh, looking to the future, um, you know, what, what are you excited about? What's, uh, you know, professionally the next sort of five to 10 years, what are you hoping to achieve? Well, uh, on my way in, I was talking to my, each morning at about six o'clock, I talked to uh, my partner's sister in right. Panama. Okay. And, uh, she's helping me to establish the Panama plan, which right. is not related to the Panama Papers. Okay. Uh, so that my next phase is to uh, base myself back in Central America, where I really enjoy yeah. the, the culture, and uh, Panama's a lovely country. Uh-huh. So we're looking they make to, a fine hat. They make a very fine hat. And uh, so uh, that's exciting. I'm going to uh, continue with QUT, but right. at the same time uh, to establish a foothold back in Central America with oh, our excellent. colleagues and okay. our family. So. Great. And uh, we've talked a lot about your professional life. So what are the kind of things that uh, you do when you're not working to keep the battery charged and, <laughs> uh, and uh, get some balance? Well, I'm certainly enjoying learning Spanish, which is... Uh, 
frustrating because it's so slow. Do you talk to your partner's sister in Spanish? Yes. Oh, good for you. Yes, yeah, okay. we do. And we're, that's getting better. Right. Uh, but it's uh, a combination. I've never been particularly good at learning a language. So right. anybody that's listening that thinks they're hopeless at learning a language, mm. I'm a good example of someone that's hopeless at learning a language. Right. Who's learning a language anyway. Okay. So uh, that's going to work. Yeah. And uh, to get that to the level where I can work in Spanish is my immediate okay. over the next okay. couple of years. Right. And... Uh, I also play golf a bit like my Spanish, I suspect. Uh, and um, so tomorrow morning I turn up at the Capera Golf Club and poke golf balls into the Capera right. Kedron Creek. Uh-huh. Uh, what else do I do? Yeah, I'm running in the QUT Classic on uh, Sunday, the fun run for the QUT. Okay. A couple of my coaching colleagues, right. a learning designer and a director or coaching coordinator and a couple of us are running in a team. Okay. Uh, it's a variety of things. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Okay, well, that's great. Well, look, Jeff, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to come and uh, have a chat to us here and certainly uh, very happy to introduce Jeff to anybody who might be uh, interested in exploring this program any further. Uh, but in the meantime, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks for the opportunity, Richard. It's a Much pleasure. appreciate it. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff, and I look forward to welcoming you to future episodes of the Arate Podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.